Good morning, everyone. Welcome to worship. Just a couple quick announcements. Uh, one, Didi is away, so the bread for communion will be slightly different. We just thought we would note that. Um, secondly, there is a missions committee meeting next Sunday, March 3rd at 3 p.m. in the church library. There's also a discipleship committee meeting tomorrow night at 6 p.m. It's going to be in the conference room uh, of the office. So if you're a part of that committee, hope you can make it there. If you would like to participate, even if you're not on the committee, you're welcome to come as well. Um, Those are our announcements this morning. Let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts and minds for worship as the music plays. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. This is God's word. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Would you join me in prayer? God, worthy, worthy are you to receive all of our worship this morning. You have created all things. You created us us to be here this morning to worship you. So God, as we bring you glory, as we honor your name this morning, would you fill us with your joy, uh, with your contentment, with your peace as we worship 
Guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we go through each portion of this service, as we hear from your word, as we sing your truth in the hymns that we sing, as we hear your word preached. Would you powerfully preach your word to our hearts this morning? And would you lead us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn, hymn 100, Holy, Holy, Holy. Let's sing hymn 100. Amen. You may be seated. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. If you would like to turn there, you may. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. This is God's Word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to take your bulletin and we'll now confess our sin together as one body. We have a corporate confession of sin printed in the bulletin. This is our prayer this morning and then we'll pray silently and individually for a few moments after we pray this out loud. So So would you please pray this with me now? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen. Dear Father, we come to you oftentimes like the prodigal son. We say, Father, I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son or your daughter. And we try to inflict punishment on ourselves. We believe that you're disappointed in us and are ashamed of us. But you are neither of these things. You are our heavenly Father and you run out to meet us. You clothe us in your righteousness, in your forgiveness, and love. Dear Lord, to you belongs mercy and forgiveness. So we pray you would forgive us of those things we have done before you to others, to ourselves, in thought, word, and deed, and those things we have done unknowingly. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive all of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the Lord's assurance of pardon to you, his forgiveness to all who come to him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You've been brought from death to life through the power of God. Amen. If you would stand for our next hymn, it will be hymn 263, Lift High the Cross. Let's stand and sing hymn 263.
You may be seated. At this time, we'll take up our tithes and offerings this morning as God has given to us. He calls us to give to him, to his name, to his church, and we'll do that now as we hear the music being played. Please pray with me. Lord, we give you these tithes and offerings for your kingdom's sake. Would you use them for all of your glory, for your name's sake? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading comes from the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. We continue to work our way through this book. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 33. Before I read it, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful now to come to your word and be able to open it up and hear you speak to us. We pray that you would bless this time, um, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would strengthen us, that you would challenge us, and above all, that Jesus Christ would be praised. We ask this in his name. Amen. 
Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. Hear God's word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom, Fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose Forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. And this ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. So we're going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah today. It's obviously been seen as a hot-button type of story, uh, especially in our modern culture. Uh, But I want us to be fed from this story. There's a lot here for us. So what can this story teach us? Two points. We're going to talk about the sins of Sodom and the intercession of Abraham. So I know two points is abnormal. Uh, don't worry, point two has four subpoints. So we actually have six points, but number one, the sins of Sodom. So there is no doubt that the rampant practice and acceptance of homosexuality was part of what brought Sodom down and why God judged Sodom. You see a strong hint of this in Genesis 19. I'm taking my Sodom and Gomorrah sermon this week, so I'm not going to read 19 uh, next time. Take the time to read it. It's, It's clearly there. It's fairly surface level. But you see this even more clearly in the book of Jude, when Jude references Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jude 1.7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued, key phrase, unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That phrase, unnatural desire, in Greek, literally says they sought strange flesh. It's undoubtedly referring to homosexual practices. Uh, This also comes out in another passage in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 50, 
where it's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says they were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Homosexuality is one of those sins in the Old Testament that's explicitly called an abomination, and it's almost certainly what Ezekiel is referring to there. But there is more to Sodom and Gomorrah than just that, and it doesn't get talked about very much. So in that passage in Ezekiel, if you back up to Ezekiel 16:49, you know, it's verse 50 that talks about uh, their abomination. Verse 49 God says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So God is telling Israel, This is why I judge Sodom. It's crystal clear. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Then he continues, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So, these people were prideful. They were materially wealthy. They lived in carefree luxury, but they didn't care about the poor and needy. So be careful about amening the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, because you might be saying, oh me, by the end of it, because many of the sins that were committed there were very liable to fall into. Chapter 19 of Genesis also shows us that Sodom was a violent city. It was the place that had no sense of hospitality to strangers. Um, that's something that comes out. If you read 18 and 19 back to back carefully, you see that very clearly. Abraham shows hospitality to the angels and the Lord as they pass through. Lot shows hospitality. The people of Sodom show the, about as much of an opposite of hospitality as you could possibly show. And so in verse 20 of our passage, Genesis 18, the Lord says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So twice there, God references the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. That word outcry is used when, in the Old Testament when people are calling out to God, seeking help because they're being oppressed, they're being wronged, they're being hurt. And so in Sodom and Gomorrah's pride and haughtiness, with their material wealth and ease, yet refusing to be generous and to give to the poor, combine that with violence and rampant homosexuality, all of this leads to people crying out to God, begging for him to bring justice against these wicked cities. And God says that's precisely what he's going to do. So that's point one, the sins of Sodom. Here's point two, the intercession of Abraham. I want you to notice four things here under Abraham's intercession, the context of his intercession, the presupposition of his intercession, the argument of his intercession, and his disposition during this intercession. So first, the context of this intercession. It's a fascinating text. God tells Abraham what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah before God executes his plan. He's inviting Abraham into the divine council with God and angels, discussing God's plan for how he's going to carry out his decrees. So in verse 17 of our passage, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That phrase, I have chosen him, if you have an ESV, it probably has a footnote. It literally means, I have known him in the Hebrew. There's this intimacy here that God has with Abraham to the point. Abraham is standing with angels in the presence of God. And then verse 22 says, So the men turned from there, that's the angels, in the appearance of men, turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. 
So this phrase, he stood before the Lord, it's a technical term. And in the rest of the Old Testament, that phrase is used to describe someone standing before God as God stands as judge over the earth, over Israel. It's used in the context of actual criminal cases when people approach God to seek justice. For instance, in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 and 17, it says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, literally stand before the Lord. And that phrase is used in the context of God's appointing leader, appointed leaders standing before him as representatives of the people. You see that, for example, in Jeremiah 15, verse 1, The Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. So here's the context of Abraham's intercession. Abraham is approaching the bar of God like an attorney or representative in behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. That should strike you. Here's the second thing under this point. The presupposition of Abraham's intercession. Abraham is not merely pleading for God to show mercy. He is calling calling God out, demanding that God act according to his own justice, his just nature. So in verse 23 of our passage, Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. So Abraham's case is, the presupposition underlying his argument with God is, God, you are the judge of all the earth. Consider that there could be civilian casualties if you carry out judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Righteous people could die because of your judgment upon the wicked. So that leads to the argument itself. So relying on this justice of God, Abraham actually begins to intercede and he makes his argument. And it's, it's obvious as you read it, it's like a reverse auction. It's what if there are 50 righteous in the city, 45 righteous, 40, 35, all the way down to 10. And God says, if I can find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy those cities. It's it's amazing to watch unfold. And if you continue reading into chapter 19, you'll see that God does indeed destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which means that there weren't ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think, well, surely there had to be ten righteous people between these two large cities. But if, if you take the Bible seriously, just think about it. What does Paul say in Romans 3? He says there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. And he's quoting Romans or Psalm 14 as he said this. All of humanity, every individual, if you stand before God in your own righteousness, we're all doomed. God's verdict is there is none righteous. No, not one. But through Abraham's intercession which God invited Abraham to do. He invited Abraham to approach the bar. God is showing us a principle that is so important. I don't even think it can be overstated how important it is. And I first heard Tim Keller say this, talking about this passage, but he summarizes the principle of this argument of Abraham with God in this way. God is willing to show mercy on the unrighteous many for the sake of the righteous few. He says, if I can find a few, ten righteous, I will show mercy on the unrighteous many. Of course, the problem is there aren't a righteous few. There aren't ten people righteous. But here's the question. As people who have the New Testament, what's the question we should be asking? It is, but what if there was one righteous person. 
The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to help us understand the gospel. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Definite article, the righteous, the righteous one. That one verse is telling us two important things. That Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He pleads, he makes the case with the Father for us. And that he is the righteous one. That means that he stands before the Father like a lawyer making his case. And his argument is, and we talked about this a couple Wednesday nights ago for those of you who were there. It's, it, Jesus is not just saying, well, well, God, well, Father, as, as I stand before, as I myself, as a person, stand before God's justice and his seat of judgment in his courtroom, and Jesus pleads for me. It isn't like, look at him, Father. You, you should feel a little sorry for him. I mean, I know he's not perfect. I know he's not really that righteous, but he's not that bad a guy. He has good intentions deep down. That's not the argument at all. Christ's argument is, Father, you chose a people out of this world to be your elect who will have faith in me as their Savior and through faith that they would escape the wrath that sin deserves and stand before you without condemnation. I took on flesh and lived a perfect life in their place and I died in their place. Look at the wounds in my hands. Your justice demands that you show mercy to the unrighteous many for my sake, for the sake of your righteous one who suffered in their place. And this is Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 5. That's why we read it earlier this morning. This, I mean, this is boiling down the gospel to its essence. In Romans five seventeen. Paul says, If because of one man's trespass, that being Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the one righteous man. Do you understand this? Now, a minister friend told me recently, he was at an event, he's making small talk, he starts talking to a woman, she knows he's a minister, she tells him, that she's about to get married. And he said, oh, that, what a lucky guy. And she goes, actually, it's not a guy, it's a girl. I'm marrying a woman. And she said, she begins, because he's a minister, to tell him that she attends church and that she's getting married in a church. And she mentioned to him that they, her church had recently sung a song that she really, really liked, and she wanted to know if he had ever heard it before. He hadn't. And the name of that song was Jesus Dropped the Charges. It's an old spiritual gospel song. And she's telling him some of the lyrics and how she loves the song. And later after he got home, he looked it up and he told me about it, so I looked it up too. Here's how the song starts. Jesus dropped the charges. I was guilty of all the charges, doomed and disgraced. But Jesus, with his special love, saved me by his grace. He pleaded and he pleaded. He pleaded my case. I'm so glad that Jesus dropped the charges. Face value sounds okay. Sounds pretty good, right? But here's why I think that she might have been particularly fond of this song. The idea that Jesus dropped the charges. I mean, it means I can just go on. The charges have been dropped. I can just go on and do whatever I want now. When the fact is, Jesus didn't drop the charges against us. He took the charges that were against us on himself. He took the charges. He didn't drop the charges. He said, Father, they're guilty, and I will take the punishment for what they deserve. Sodom and Gomorrah got the hellfire and the brimstone. On the cross, Jesus is taking the hellfire and the brimstone. And he's taking it for us. And that makes demands on how we live. We don't just want to change. We don't just want to obey God because we have his law. His law is wonderful. His law is beautiful. It should be our delight. But that's not the only reason we want to change. We want to change because Jesus loves us so much that he took that guilty verdict for us, that he took the charges. There's a point. Jesus refers to Sodom and Gomorrah multiple times 
in the Gospels. And what he always says, he keeps saying that he's going from town to town, city to city, and people are rejecting him. And he says, you know, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for these cities who've rejected me. Because if you reject him, if you reject his teaching, you are rejecting not only God's law, not only God's purpose and plan for your life, you're rejecting the love of a Savior who was willing to come and live, take those charges upon himself, and die for you. You're not only living in rebellion against God, you're living in rebellion against the knowledge that Jesus took the guilty verdict for you. And so he says, at the end of the day, that deserves worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah got. You know, we've looked at the context of Abraham's intercession, the courtroom of God, the presupposition of his intercession, the justice of God, the argument of his intercession that God will show mercy to the unrighteous many for the sake of the righteous one. That leads to our last point under this heading. I want to think about the disposition of Abraham's intercession. Here's his disposition as he's making this argument, this pleading for the salvation of the unrighteous many for the sake of the righteous few. His disposition is that he actually wants God to show mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah. Say that again. He actually wants God to show mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, I, was one, I remember a time I was in church and a preacher was preaching on hell and he quoted somebody who said something like, if there was more hell fire in the pulpits, there'd be less hell in the streets. And you know, everybody perks up. You get, get the little grin. But if, you, if your inclination to that is to say amen right away, I want you to think about that for a minute. There's a passage in Amos chapter 5 that talks about the day of the Lord when God judges all the earth. And this is what it says, Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? Jesus Christ preached about hell more than anybody else. He preached about it because it was the truth. But I don't think he ever relished it. I don't think when he preached it, he was rubbing his hands together, saying, I'm going to get you. Because this same Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you wouldn't have it. That's why C.S. Lewis said, you know, you have a choice. You either look to God and you say, thy will be done, or he looks at you and says, thy will be done. You wouldn't have it. In Luke 23 on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Christ's heart is first and foremost a heart of love. And he came so that we could experience that love for all of eternity. You know, and some people look at Christ, you know, I got up here today and I committed a major no-no. I talked about homosexuality. I talked about materialism. People are not comfortable with these sorts of things. And so you hear this type of message and you think Christ is some kind of strict, severe judge who just longs to drop the hammer down on people who disagree with him. But that's not the case at all. The best book I've ever read on the pastoral ministry was a book by William Still, great Scottish preacher, called The Work of the Pastor. And he tells a story about a conversation he had with a man who rejected Christ because he thought Christ was too severe and too strict. And this is what Still said. You must learn that Christ is no mere judge, but a savior who saves us by gaining our trust and confidence more and more and letting us live our total life in him. He is much more concerned about where we are going than about how far we have got. 
this chap's Christ was a drill sergeant. And he thought that that was what I was preaching. No, I was thinking of a Christ who would be with him when he went off the deep end and betrayed his fallen self and made a donkey of himself. I almost read the word. And in private, it was a preacher that said it, and denied his own true holy nature. A Christ who was always kindly, always there, not to his sin, but to him, who was willing to be dragged to places and into thoughts that he hated because he loved him and would not let him go. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a judgment coming for all those who've rejected Christ. The judge of the earth does what is right, but we don't have to experience that judgment because Jesus, the righteous one, was willing to come and die for the unrighteous many. And this is what I want to close with. This should change the disposition of our hearts. Seeing, Jesus, seeing Abraham plead for Sodom and Gomorrah, actually wanting God to show mercy. Seeing Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, they, I wanted to gather them as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but they wouldn't have it. Seeing his heart for the lost should change our heart for the lost and how we look at them. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity... It's one of the best pieces of C.S. Lewis's writing, and there are lots, a lot of them. He says, For a long time I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a person did and not hate the person? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely me. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the person should have done such things and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, they can be cured. Even for those who must be punished for their evil, we must try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves, to wish that he were not bad, to hope that he may, in this world or another, be cured. In fact, to wish is good. That is what is meant in the Bible by loving him, not feeling fond of him, nor saying he is good when he is bad, but wishing his good. And we live in this way, speaking the truth, but seeking God, asking God, pleading with God to have mercy on sinners, trusting with Abraham, trusting in Christ that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We are unworthy, undeserving sinners, but you call us your children, and we rejoice in that fact today. May we rejoice in that fact now as we come to your table to be fed by the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to hymn number 254, and we'll sing the first three stanzas of Alas, and Did My Savior Believe.
You may be seated. We come now to the Lord's Supper. This is the table and this is the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ wherein he invites his people to come and feed upon him by faith. This table is for believers. Uh, If you're here this morning and you have not rested and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, then we would ask that you refrain from partaking of this bread and this cup. Simply let them pass through the pews as they go along. But we would encourage you. Repent of your sins, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Be baptized in obedience to his command, and then come again back to this table. Uh, For those of us who are believers, the unrighteous many who have been saved by the righteous one, confess your sins to the Lord, repent of them, trust in him, come to this table to receive Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, find spiritual strength and power from his death for you. Now, before we partake of these elements, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this meal, and we ask now that you would consecrate it from common elements that they are of bread and of this cup, that you would consecrate them for a holy use now, for the nourishing of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now hear the words of institution. Our Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now as we distribute the bread, please hold on to it to the end and we'll all partake together. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
body of Christ given for us. Take and eat. In like manner, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. God proves his love in this, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Drink from it. All of you. Let us pray. Father, as we've partaken of these elements, we set our hearts and our minds on our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we thank you and pray that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, would guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn. We'll sing the 
Last two stanzas of number 254, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. Stanzas four and five. Let's stand. Now leave with God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.